tonight Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win gold But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go Talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO What's the band that I am? So not Steeler's Wheel? Like DJ1? Mike's Wheel? Mike's Wheel? That's terrible. That's, that's really <laughs> awful. I'm glad we're not musicians. And we're back. Uh, welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We are doing the spoiler section and all that that entails and is included with of Pulp Fiction as part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. If you joined us either yesterday or the day before, uh, we did the non-spoiler section. A whole bunch of stuff went into that. Mike, what did we cover in the non-spoiler section? Yeah, we did a year in review, 94, 95. We did a whole Oscar lens on on. The six nominations that Pulp Fiction got, and we talked about each one of those categories. We discussed, you know, how we first watched the film and told you our personal stories. Uh, we we went into all the production values, and we did a little mini segment on what makes Quentin dance, and really got into the soundtrack. And finally, all the homages that Tarantino pays to previous films. There was a lot of that in our non-spoiler script thoughts somehow we're able to do that without spoilers and now we're about to head into all our spoiler stuff yeah so just to give you a recap of what is in the spoiler section of the tarantino episodes usually they're one episode at least they were for a 99 minute movie like reservoir dogs not so much for a two and a half hour movie like pulp fiction we'll see what the rest of the series entails Mm -hmm. but for the spoiler section we'll call it at least for now of these tarantino uh episodes we're going to have a Scene interpretation reenactment is what we've been calling them as part of MMO Theater. Mike, Mike, and Oscar. There you go. I think you just coined it. You got there. You got there. Those are going to act as the spoiler, official spoiler warning. So instead of a DJ dance segment like you get in the OSBs, instead of a piece of the movie like you get in the Pixar rewatch episodes, that's what we decided to do for spoiler warnings for the Tarantino episodes. As well, coming out of the spoiler warning, we're going to have what's called Trademark Tarantino. We're going to go over uh, the highlights, basically, of what Tarantino's movies are most known for we also hit on what we think they should be known for maybe some underrated things that nobody ever really associates with them that we really vehemently think may be more important than what their movies are best known for in some cases our 12th watch of the movie or whatever it (laughs) is now it's going to yield some little intricacies and we got some to pinpoint right as well we're going to go over some screenwriting advice from tarantino himself some little quotes that also mike has dug up along the way about how he approaches each script five rules from film slate on this one and then we're going to end these episodes or these sections the spoiler sections on some easter eggs and some ways of connecting the tarantino verse all within itself and again we're not trying to highlight the obvious easter eggs that everyone knows we try to dig a little deeper and highlight some stuff bring forward some questions tie them into future tarantino episodes uh some stuff that maybe even the most passionate tarantino fan may or may not know we'll see how that plays but for now like we said it's spoiler warning time so let's bring you the latest production from mmo theaters uh (laughs) scene interpretation reenactment and now for your spoiler warning pleasure the mike mike and oscar theater company presents a quentin tarantino scene reenactment interpretation The wolf and jimmy turn heading for the bedroom leaving vincent and jules standing in the kitchen a please would be nice 
The wolf stops and turns around. Come again? I said a please would be nice. The wolf takes a step towards him. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better fucking do it. And do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. It ain't that way, Mr. Wolf. Your help is definitely appreciated. I don't mean any disrespect. I just, I don't like people barking orders at me. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. So we're going to start, like we said, talking trademark Tarantino. There's so many things that are so well-known and so seeped in the history of pop culture and cinema based off this one movie alone. I don't know how you want to handle it if you want to go from the top down and just go throughout the movie. We but could just do like a recap of the whole movie yeah, in a way. Yeah, pretty much what I have. It really was difficult, but we did pick some scenes that are mostly classic and iconic. It was hard to find that underrated scene you sure know, i i very much did, was. but i did find a, a thing or two so who want you want to start or you want me to start i'll start from the top of the cool. movie and we're having a callback to what happened in reservoir dogs when you have characters that know things ahead of time that they just haven't revealed to the audience yet yeah i like this the very first scene of the movie you have pumpkin and honey bunny talking about what happens and what's the best way to rob a place well Pumpkin in the scene has already decided they're robbing this diner that they're sitting in. We just don't know it yet. Yeah. And so when Honey Bunny is talked into it, she doesn't need much convincing at all. When the first scene ends, she turns and tells everyone this is a robbery. Uh, that's how the opening credits meet us in this movie. And it's much akin to what happened in Reservoir Dogs. It's the same kind of Mr. White, Mr. Pink right. conversation where Mr. White essentially is convinced by Mr. Pink. And Mr. Pink is shouting all these obvious objections that he really doesn't object to that strongly because he's done this a million right. times. Or and that the cop in Reservoir Dogs knows who yeah. Mr. Orange is, knows he's a cop already, and that's not revealed to us until after the climax of Act 2. All that stuff play is into play. Now, I, it's toned down because there is that whole aspect of Honey Bunny needs to be let in on the secret of yeah. this is the place we're going to rob. But it's also lip service in a way. It's how they hype themselves up right. to do the job. Get into the mode, yeah. You know, in Reservoir Dogs, it's lip service for how they're going to get out of that situation, but they really don't want to leave that safe bunker or whatever so, right and of course these two really do want to get their next score mm -hmm. because they don't really want to get real jobs not in this life as, right. as uh, <laughs> pumpkin says so it makes sense my classic tarantino is, is something that happens a couple times in this movie and it's how violence erupts yeah and especially when you least expect it and it's a bit you know different from reservoir dogs in a way but marvin in the car ride that's a goof that was not supposed to happen. That's an accident in this movie, Mike. And Marvin, played by Phil Lamar, actually changed the script pretty significantly when he suggested that what was written down should be changed because Quentin had him getting shot through the throat and dying slowly and oh. the neck opening up and spraying all the windows of the car. And actually, Phil Lamar's like, no, I think he should hit me in the face. Just blast my hat face off. And then, of course, Travolta's like, I shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Get the shot. I've heard that impression somewhere before. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. That we are, in the most unsuspecting of moments, we are met with the most shameless, bloody, gory violence. And somehow it's funny. Yeah. Because Travolta is like, I shot Marvin in the face and that line gets <laughs> And Lamar knew 
It was going to be funny because it would have been sadistic if he died slowly from sure. a neck wound. Yeah. Yeah. Good so forethought that, by him. It really worked. I have some questions about some stuff that's become iconic. Who among us doesn't know the Royale with cheese line and that whole conversation? Why is that conversation as well known, if not more so, than the quotes from the Ezekiel conversation in the scenes that follow it? Oh, I love it because it's talking about nothing. It's talking about these Americans who should be, like, you would expect these hitmen, right, to be just go America, everything Europe sucks, yeah, and just be totally xenophobic, right, sure. Mike? But they're not. He's saying, you know, they got the same shit over there that they got here, just the little differences that I really enjoy. And it's from Tarantino's, you know, trip to Amsterdam when he's writing this right. movie. Uh, so that, that, yeah, I love how it endears you and, and totally subverts your expectations to these killers. <laughs> these awful men. Awful, yeah. awful people. Two more moments from, from my kind of trope here is that, you know, when Marcellus is crossing the street, Mike, motherfucker. <laughs> Holy cow, I never thought in a million years that violence was going to erupt after violence just erupted with uh, Travolta coming out of the bathroom. Yeah, you think Butch is home free now, wondering why the camera's lingering on him for this long. This whole movie's a <laughs> shot of adrenaline because you get a breather, you get a nice dialogue scene, you get a quiet scene, and then you get oh my god, come out of the crapper, I'm, I murder this guy once my toaster comes up. So when you think my Pop-Tart is going to come out of the toaster, you don't think you're going to have a bloody mess at the end of that scene. You think scene. you're going to get some kind of back and forth dialogue like you get every time the bad guy has the good guy cornered or yeah. vice versa. You're not going to get just a straightaway gunshot riddled body. You don't think after the dance off that Vincent is in the bathroom talking himself out of what? A seduction scene because yeah. they have the setup there. Is that an awkward sign? I don't know what that was, <laughs> Mia says. So Mia is dancing She's, she wants to party all night with Vincent, which, and we know where that's going to go. Mike, she ODs on the heroin he had in his coat pocket there that she thought was uh, cocaine. I forgot who pointed this out, and I didn't write it down as an Easter egg, but somebody online, and my apologies for not remembering, but somebody online said one of the go-tos and repeated it is just how awful things get for Vincent once he steps out of any bathroom in this movie. Oh, yeah. And it's just a repeated trope over and over, and you just highlighted the two How, biggest ones. When anybody steps out of the bathroom, <laughs> when the other guy's cowering in the bathroom because Jules and Vincent, you know, knocked on the door, and he's got the gun. And That's a like, good example. At the end of the movie, Vincent comes out of the bathroom in the diner, and he's in the walks in on a stick-up on, yeah. on Jules being held at gunpoint. Pumpkin and honey. Yeah. So, do you have anything more for super classic? I mean, obviously... Yeah, can... look, I mean, super classic, the most classic of the classic in this movie is... I have 12 in one monologue scene where Ezekiel is being quote-unquote quoted, which he's not, because we talked about that in the, in the non-spoiler section, but I have 12 lines that are just... Hamburgers, the cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. Big Kahuna Burger is mentioned. This is a tasty burger. Check out the big brain on bread. You mind if I have some of your tasty beverage to wash this down? I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? English, motherfucker. Do you speak it? Say what again? Say what again? Say what again is probably my favorite line. So... I had this as like a sneaky classic entry for me because it's how a Tarantino predator 
catches his prey. And these char- characters are prey. This is interesting. Go ahead. These are violent characters. And Jules talking about fast food to lure Brett and his team into that path of least resistance, into that passivity, into that docile nature. Like, he doesn't let Brett stand, stand up. up. Yeah. He doesn't want things to escalate. It's a very crowd-control way to do things so that he stays in control. He'll do it at the end of the movie, too. It's a good point. To ironically defuse the situation, mm-hmm. even though this is his just, I want to, you know, basically give myself the stage way of doing things because I know I'm going to kill these guys the minute I walk in. Right. But I don't want to be this loud and have all these gunshots go for more than two minutes because the cops are going to get called if I do that. Still, he's that loud. He probably should have gotten the cops called on him. (laughs) Anyway, he knows the response time or whatever. So bottom line is he is doing this preamble about the big kahuna burger. And then once he drinks that entire Sprite. The entire thing. You know it's on. <laughs> yeah. You know it's trouble. And if you th- you thought it was going to be trouble, you were right. And it's the same thing with Christoph Waltz's character at, in, at the beginning of Inglorious Bastards. This is going to become a sneaky classic way Tarantino bad guys or Tarantino characters and trap their prey. As far as sneaky classic, I know we don't want to totally go down this road, but mine has to do with the way he wrote the Vincent Jules characters anyway. Yes, obviously they're terrible people. They're assassins. And part of the entire arc of the movie is Jules having his come-to-Jesus moment and realizing what he's doing is a bad thing and he's being going to actually believe in the Ezekiel quote that he kept reciting ad nauseum throughout yeah. his Hitman career. But the way in which... Tarantino makes them personable to us. Like, there is no need for Travolta to talk at length and bring up Amsterdam over and over again. His one-off trip to Amsterdam. Now, you could say that's just gratuity on Tarantino's part for wanting to include the stuff about Amsterdam because that's where he wrote the movie. Yeah, that's where he's literally writing the thing. Or you can say it just helps us get to know Vincent better because we're able to get into a look into his psyche and he's talking about the drugs that are over there. He's talking about his time over there. He's well, you got this killer, place. right? You got to endear him to the audience, and right. especially an international audience where this film does extremely well, where his last movie just did well, mm-hmm. was a hit. So it makes some sense that you get nods to the, you know, the, the European life. Sure. And, it, and it, it makes sense for Tarantino to essentially want them to see his next movie. And they do, he does it again with Vince. When he's trying, when he brings a passed out or a dead, for all intents and purposes, Mia, yeah. over to Lance's house, and Lance is walking Vince through how to inject the adrenaline into Mia's heart. I don't know why this stuck with me, but I, I consider it so sneaky, because if I'm Vince in that situation, right, yeah. I'm freaking out. And nothing rational or logical is going on in my head. So if I'm watching a man explaining to me how to inject adrenaline into my boss's dead wife, who I killed, right. essentially... And the guy showing me how to do it mimics injecting her three times with the adrenaline. <laughs> I'm not. I know logically in this state of mind. Right times. in my state of mind right now, of course you don't inject her three times. Oh but because God. I'm going fucking crazy, yeah. and I see the guy, the teacher stabbing. I'm, I'm going to. So I have to inject her three times. No, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> no, you idiot. Like I just think that, and that it just adds another dimension. Of Vincent's freaking out. He's not this stone cold hitman like we think of every hitman movie up until the '90s was made. He's this guy <laughs> that just has his faults and has his charms, and is is. I don't know why that stuck out to me so much, but I think it was for that reason, and I think it's very 
sneakily done and purposely done on Tarantino's part. Yeah, and how about the domestic argument between Rosanna Arquette <laughs> and Eric Stoltz there? You know, what are you looking for? My medical book. <laughs> they got that whole lead up, which is crazy. And where's my super suit, woman? We just saw that in The Incredibles with you know Samuel Jackson, ironically. And, and she's and giving what? him digs constantly, and he's just like, and you just get the adrenaline out of the fridge. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, another, it's sneaky classic, but it's really just classic in a way, or it's become so. The lengthening and the relishing of some of these lines of dialogue, it kind of connects to what yeah. you were saying. Obviously, that Big Jules speech, the fact that that's a speech in an apartment when these hitmen should just walk in there, kill the guys, <laughs> take this case, right. and leave. In it. Yeah. But no, you got this predator that relishes his job. These guys enjoy their work, which is sick. But it fits them because they're having such a colorful conversation mm-hmm. leading into it. You know there's this invention called TV where they show shows, right? <laughs> that's a great line. And the, just the re- repetition, show shows. I love that. You got the, the way that Mia slash Uma Thurman tells Vincent about Fox Force 5, as in there's one, two, three, four, five of us. For her to just elaborate, again, <laughs> relishing the moment, counting out one, two, three, four, five of us on her finger, which is these flares of dialogue. Or giving in on telling the joke from this from that movie after being brought back to life and returned home after dying that night. <laughs> she goes on and tells the ketchup you joke. You get the setup and yeah. the payoff of the joke. And Marcellus has got some great moments and how he, just his back of the head telling the story, but how he's telling Butch and questioning Butch. Right, and I love how that's repeated again after he come out, comes out, you know, alive from the the rape scene, the, mm-hmm. the crazy scene. Oh, that what now? It's the same kind of cadence as the scene where he's asking Butch basically repeat after me, and it's that same cadence that they both have to, you know, confirm with one another. Do we have a deal? Yes, we have a deal, and it's that reinforcement of the deal because this guy's a deal maker at the highest levels with lives on the line. It makes so much sense in the story, but it's also fun to musical to listen to in dialogue. Musical is the is the operative word there because Tarantino, and I don't think people would think this without really focusing in on, on this type of series, but he's really got a handle on the English language like Sorkin does. Yeah. Where Sorkin is so relatable in the fact that we kind of mimic emotions with his characters and we would say, he says what we would say in those same situations. Tarantino does find, you know, it's not exactly the same. He has his moments like I just talked about where Vincent's freaking out, but he does have this like flow through all his words and it just it's memorable dialogue for that reason and I in part wonder if that's why we remember the Ezekiel quote, if that's why we remember the big kahuna quote yeah. or the, or the uh, Royale with cheese quotes, because it does have that kind of flow to it. I totally agree yeah. with you whether it's iambic pentameter or whatever, but I'm going to get into it in screenwriting advice and kind of go off on it. But cool. that's a perfect, you know, teaser. The, and the Sorkin connection is, is great. Too. So you had some some highlights of what differentiates this. And this was kind of another uh, aspect we wanted to talk about. We didn't have a chance to do it in Reservoir Dogs, obviously, because it's the first movie. But now that we're going on through movies, we're going to try to find some things that Quentin does differently that he didn't do in previous movies. So what do we have? This is a perfect transition from Reservoir Dogs because Quentin Tarantino literally uses... 
his last movie as a setup for this movie because he creates some of the same scenarios. The biggest one, of course, is that we get this Mexican standoff, yeah. Mike. And in the last movie, it ends in a what? It ends in a shootout and a bloodbath, blood and everybody's squib goes off in their right. chest, even if they're not actually <laughs> being pointed a you know gun at and shooting. You know that was fun. Another to talk thing about. that goes wrong in a Tarantino film that isn't corrected and we, becomes lore. We have a three-way Mexican standoff. We have Vincent holding a gun on Amanda Plummer, Honey mm-hmm. Bunny. We have her holding a gun on Jules, who's holding a gun. I actually have a four-way. He added one. He added <laughs> one. So we have this four-way standoff with guns pointed at one another. And what happens? We're totally thinking it's going to be another bloodbath. This is what this filmmaker does. Mm-hmm. And yet he puts a redemption story on the end of it, which is the theme of this particular plot. And that is just so amazing to have you set up like it's to come up and it's a fable at the end of a fairy tale at the end of the last movie, right? We got all these so-called cool gangsters that get their comeuppance. Now you can argue with that because some do, some don't. But the, the theme of this movie is redemption. It's literally just seeping through the premise to the film itself. And you have forgiveness involved. You have Jules forgiving Ringo at the end of the story. Not something that happened in Reservoir Dogs. No. Mr. White... It does not forgive. No. <laughs> Let's <laughs> no. just say that much. Very much a subversion of expectation. You're absolutely right. You know, Uma, Mia Wallace, could not forgive Vincent at the end, and she could tell her husband, or she could whatever. She, But she totally forgives Vincent for almost killing her with what was in his pocket. She understands she has an addiction, he has an addiction, and they, un- they commiserate there. Does Butch have a redemptive story arc in this? Well, Butch forgives Marcellus for putting a hit on him and for turning his whole world upside down, even though he's, you know, screwing him over. But Does he Butch forgive is, him or does he get a way out of it? Butch, I don't think when Butch saves Marcellus in that scene, like, he would be scot-free no matter what. Right. He does not have to go back and say, that is a great dilemma, that is just old school, great dilemma. Yeah. Like, the lesser of two evils. Crisis I'm gonna, of conscious. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to risk my life to save this guy because it's the correct thing to do. Or I'm going to get away. It's, it's not the lesser of two evils. It's the irreconcilable good. He's either going to get away or he's going to play the hero. And he takes just a long time to choose that weapon, which is another Tarantino thing. Whenever he's a weapon's involved, they love to just linger on the gun. Right. You know, coming out of the bathroom, you have Bruce Willis Butch studying <laughs> that gun, looking back up to the bathroom, looking back. You know, this always happens. It's going to happen a ton in Kill Bill. How different would this film have been if... He didn't make Pop-Tarts in this movie. Like, it would have been a totally different movie. Totally different movie if the guy didn't have a sugar rush in the morning habit. The wolf doesn't take offense at Vincent when Vincent's, like, saying please. Talks back, yeah. In a scene that I think is in my subconscious now after whatever we did at the beginning of this episode. I saw a great performance by an amateur troupe. I, I did. I did, too. Whatever. Somebody should hire them for other stuff. I think... This doesn't go with what it did differently. Maybe it does, because everyone in Reservoir Dogs is overly capable in their positions, right? I'm going to float a theory out to you. We talked about this in the pre-production of this episode. Is the wolf a troll job by Tarantino? This is a fascinating theory. I need you to elaborate (laughs) before I can... So... I loved it, though. The wolf is this fixer, right? And to the extent that he's willing to leave a family funeral, what looks like, to to answer Marcellus needs help and his boys need help and he's going to go fix. So he's the ultimate fixer and he's got this stoked out reputation. Oh, you're going to send the wolf? That's all you had to say. You know, so that's, he's this guy that can do anything, okay? And he comes 
And his big plan, once he sees what went down and what Vince and Jules need help with and their situation, how to get them out of it, the Wolf's big plan, his big idea, is to sop up the blood (laughs) and to put quilts down over the upholstery. I understand he's got the money to pay off. He got the linens from Tarantino. I understand he's got the hookup with the auto body shop. I'm going to play devil's advocate this time because you did it last time to me. When he's like, I'm going to shoot you. You're like, I'm going to shoot you in the belly and see how you react. (laughs) I think these guys are traumatized after the whole morning they had. And the wolf is kind of a talk you down, give you the obvious solution, the simplest solution. Because he's dealing with... Then he's got the greatest job in the world. Yeah. All he's got to do is speak the obvious. He speaks the obvious. He (laughs) literally does that. And he literally does it with Quentin Tarantino's Jimmy character, who's like, I can't give away these linens that are in the depth of my attic. And he's like, yeah, you can, because you can get a new bedroom set from your Uncle Marcellus. So I think my devil's advocacy is just saying the wolf is is somebody who has to do, do this job. And he has an easy job, but he also has to be a therapist that's the hard part of his job but should two hitmen need talking down after killing someone whether it's accidental or not they're trigger happy madmen and they're gonna shoot each other throughout the build-up of this whole sequence if it keeps going this way because in the bathroom travolta's like you know i only can take so much jules you know i respect you but this is gonna come to a head and he's literally telling him and then when they're picking up brain jules like i'm a mushroom cloud lame motherfucker motherfucker and he's got that speech we're gonna go and of course they are in awe of the wolf so it works out perfectly based on what happens and i can speak from hindsight being 2020 but you're right he doesn't have that hard of a job. I think I enjoy it more if Tarantino's just putting us all on. Yeah. And they're just calling in a guy to do the insanely obvious that adds <laughs> nothing to the process other than buying some sheets and knowing somebody that owns a auto garage. Yeah. But he drives fast and he loves great car. He recognizes great He's car. got a, a huge sense of self. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love that character so much. I, do I don't know if I care at the end of the day. I don't either. Just, I really don't. Just because you are a character doesn't mean you have a character. He's just great. Every line he delivers is yeah. pretty, pretty perfect. Phenomenal. Pitch perfect. Uh, Mike, to subvert those expectations from Reservoir Dogs, again, I got a few other things. Like the dance sure. scene in Reservoir Dogs ends in death and torture. The dance scene in this one... It ends in something crazy, but it's not death and torture. It's a redemption plot for that whole Mia plot. I guess you can make an argument that it does end in death. It's just they bring her back. Because the end of the dance scene yeah. leads to her finding oh, Dean, the, the, but yeah. not death. I mean, it, right. it ends with an act of heroism, right. in a way. Which kind of the last one did, too. So, yeah. all right, maybe yeah. that's too here and there. And then, Mike, the car rides in Reservoir Dogs... They never end in a crash, even though you think they're going to crash. Right. I mean, the slowest, all right, when Quentin's driving in Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Blue, was it? He's already. Mr. Brown. Yeah, he's already hit, though. Yeah, he's already hit, and it's going slow. Right. But in this movie, you think you're just going to have a big dialogue scene in the car, just like at the beginning of the movie, just like in Reservoir Dogs, and then, motherfucker. Or you, yeah, or you think your you hero up. is going to get away scot-free. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like, it happens a couple times. It's crazy. What did you think about, not to go right into worse scenes, but I just have some questions. What did you think about the fade to black in that scene? Butch is getting away. He encounters Marcellus in the walkway. Hits Marcellus. Marcellus passes out. Butch crashes. What did you think about the fade to black there? And then come right back a couple moments later. I think the response time by the emergency services back in the 19-whatever. <laughs> was poor. was poor. Because <laughs> Kathy Griffin... 
a, a well-known stand-up comedian, even then, right. is able to basically take control of the crowd. Mike, her performance in that scene is priceless. <laughs> Watch it again. Go on YouTube. It is brilliant because she literally does this cartoonish thing. She's a terrible actress in the scene. But she does this cartoon thing where she literally just turns and walks away and like bobs when her head. When she sees the gun, yeah. It is so, what? <laughs> Goofy thing. Like, oh boy. And she turns her back on the gunman, which is something you never see. Like, everybody who's running from a gunman always runs looking at the gunman sideways and awkwardly and terrified. Yeah. And she just literally goes... Not for me. I'm <laughs> walking away. <laughs> that was very funny. That I didn't notice funny. that on watch. And uh, her being credited as Kathy Griffin, I imagine that was, they had no choice after that. that like seeing funny. that on screen uh, and, and really? laughing at it. I also wanted to know, what did you think about the pancake scene? The describing the breakfast. The scene where Fabian's describing what she's going to eat for breakfast and then Butch passes out and takes a nap. I thought that was just a colossal waste of time. We're there for like five minutes. That, like showering and... Yeah. That's where the movie lulls a little bit. Reservoir Dog lulls in the same way based on the friendship between Tim Roth. So the, kind of that jump into the second half of yeah. Act 2. This is always a big thing in uh, screenwriting tropes where they tell you you got to have, I, don't, I forget the name for it, you got to have a reward for your hero surviving the mid-Act 2 crisis or whatever. So his was a nap? So his was a nap with his and a kissy mm. time with his girlfriend. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then, I of course, sense. B- before... You kind of kick off the star story again, which was set up beautifully with the Christopher Walken scene. <laughs> it is ass. I hated that kid, by the way. He was Bad looking kid. everywhere but at where Christopher Walken or his mother would well, be. Well, Christopher Walken ended up shooting the rest of that scene just to, to speaking it to a lens because the kid was yeah. famously just not able to pay attention because place. it was all Christopher yeah. Walken just talking at him. So the kid was like just done after like a couple hours of this and had to be taken off and then Walken finished the scene by himself. And Walken, I mean, that story on its face, it makes sense because of the, the drama, I guess, that's built into it. Yeah. But if you take that story from 3,000 feet, that story is about a watch that spent seven years up different men's assholes that was given to a small child. <laughs> made me laugh so hard it's so funny when i first seen that that was my biggest laugh of the movie right there and now i get because right after he's like it is ass right after he goes through that part of it and this spent four years in my ass yeah he goes and now i give the watch right (laughs) it carries its seriousness because it's this fairly family heirloom and it's supposed to mean so much and your dad went through so much to save it yes In reality, it's just an asshole watch that's being handed to a small child. (laughs) It is a poopy watch. It is the man poopy watch. And that should have been all that stuck out to the kid. Of course. (laughs) All right. I guess we could uh, pivot now, talk about some worse and some lowlights and problems we have with it. And to no one's surprise, there's usage of a word that shouldn't be used. So I just don't understand why at Jimmy's... And why it's Quentin Tarantino's character doing some of the most repugnant shit. Hated shaking. everything about the introduction of his character. Yeah, Hated the whole it. Madonna, like a virgin speech in Reservoir Dawes was disgusting, right? Right. It was just disgusting at the beginning of that movie, showing the, mm-hmm. these characters are kind of disgusting and chauvinist. And the, the whole scene, it sets up the scene to giving you something you wouldn't expect. The don't tip back and forth, which is actually something good. Here... Again, it finishes really well with all the wolf stuff, and it's fun. But why, like, you could easily use the word dead body or dead guy. It's simple. You don't have to use any words like that. It makes no sense, too, because Jimmy is Jules' friend. How does Jules let him get away with using that word? I hate 
the fact. And Tar- there's a report that Tarantino was debating whether he was going to play Lance or whether he was going to play Jimmy. And he wanted to play Jimmy because he wanted to be behind the camera for the Lance scene for the injection of Mia. Yeah. So he decides to play Jimmy. Now, Jimmy is written. I don't know if this was before, if this was how Jimmy was always written or if it was written this way after Tarantino decided he was going to play this. But Jimmy's written as a guy with all the leverage. Like, he can do no wrong. And I think it's just a really bad look to have that character be portrayed by the writer-director and then have him be the one throwing the word around with zero consequence. I've agreed with Tarantino's argument for using violence in films. I've never agreed with his argument against Spike Lee for using this kind of word in films because it always comes off as... And maybe he's got merit to it. I don't know. Maybe at the you know fifty years from now we'll all be right. much more. I, yeah, I don't know. Sure. I don't Who know. Knows, but I don't know. But bottom line, right is now it's an issue. As a petulant white guy, angry that he can't use that word right. for artistic purposes. That's exactly how it comes because, off. You know, it, black people can use that word, but I can't use that word, and it comes off as this belligerent argument from a white dude saying, "No, I mean everybody should be used right. should be able to use everything for art's sake." Which for, no, that no, that's not right. reality. Yes, I totally agree. That's how it comes off, and that's how it plays. Man, it's just the exact same problem I had with the usage of it in Reservoir Dogs. The the character that uses it most egregiously, most offensively, most unnecessarily, suffers no consequence at the end of the day, gets away scot-free in the story, doesn't have a comeuppance, we don't even see his wife come home. That's what he's most worried about, and he doesn't even encounter that issue. Yeah. He's orchestrating, he's allowing this getaway, this recovery to be orchestrated at his house's expense. It happens beautifully, no hitch, and it's done. And there's no plot device and no judgment for his awfulness. And if Tarantino's response, like we said it was in Reservoir Dogs, is I want to show them using the worst language to show that they're awful people, that doesn't hold water when movie after movie you're showing there's no... Endgame. I just wonder if it's going to hold up after 100 years because if Tarantino's argument is that African Americans are going to watch this movie and they're going to love it and they're going to go to it and see it at the time in 1995 and I can use those words and they're going to understand what I mean by it. And later on when I make Django Unchained, they're going to understand that the usage of the words, as painful as it is, works towards the storytelling and they're going to enjoy the movie because I'm trying to make something important for their culture and, and to say what shits these slavers were, etc., mm-hmm. etc. If he's going to say that it worked in the time, well, box office proves him right in a way, to a degree. Because, yeah, it worked on both audiences, white audiences and, and, and African-American audiences. 50 years from now, it may not. And I, I'm going to argue like I did with Reservoir Dogs, I think some of the, like these scenes are ruined by the chauvinism. I took a point or two off off its final grade. I, this is the high one of the highest graded movies yeah. I've ever had for the, the first time we did it because we did a ninety four best picture episode that we never released. But I took a point or two off. The racism of ruins some, yeah. that scene in particular. The chauvinism ruins the the plot line with Mia and how they're talking about yep. the. I mean, the foot massage stuff is still kind of it's it, it's. It's aggravating because then it comes into play again with Fabian and how she is just such a crying widow or crying woman with no power in those scenes. Yeah. And all she does is screw up. And that sucks. The, the chauvinism of that and all she is is just a, a cuddle buddy. Yep. You know, and, that, and that's that's objectifying and, and wrong. 
and Mia Wallace is ultimately a damsel in distress in her scene. I wonder if Kill Bill is going to be a response to the criticism that he's going to get for being a bit chauvinistic or a bit typical male Hollywood where the women just get saved. You know, and it, Mia, at least, I mean, to play devil's advocate there, it's she's not as helpless as Fabian because she's leading the conversation. She's the one directing Vincent, telling him what to do in the conversation. Right. You got to keep up. You got to come up with better topics. You know, she's, she's the alpha there. So at least that's played off. Right. Where and she's the one that chooses to go into his coat pocket and Yeah, but what know. happens in right. the nugget in the in the chestnut that, that is that scene? Right. I, I don't know. I don't like it. The the thing that I have an issue with in this movie is the glorification of heroin in that one scene. I get it as something that in a way has to happen. And I don't want to totally agree with Bob Dole because I don't. And the way Bob Dole criticized Train Spotting and lumped these two movies together is ridiculous. Train Spotting is perhaps one of the the best deterrents for drug. Like I watched that movie. Sure. You, you always wonder, like, would I ever do a hard drug? Yeah. Right. Would I ever do cocaine if it was put in front of me? I've never had. I, I, I mean, well, and yeah. Would I ever do that? Even like a recreational something that's a little harder than, than than marijuana. Would I ever do that? And after watching Train Spotting and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I would never do it. And Recreant I love the for argument. Yeah. Recommend for a dream. Perfect examples. Yeah. You show it in, in, in the fun and game segment of your movie. You're gonna get that cool music. You're gonna get that hip montage lighten up. But is it is it triggering to addicts? I wonder. I worry and I worry about it. That's a fair. That's a fair statement. Um, I'm asking. I know you have a bigger issue with it in this movie than me. So, do you think that because Tarantino has addressed Bob Dole directly in interviews and in yeah. I, I think in the Vanity Fair, I don't feel like his argument is that strong. He said that he's Tarantino actually does. showing Pulp Fiction is showing the negative side of drug use. So, is it, are they not? Because, like you just said, it's okay to write it into your fun and it's games okay. to show the high the the. Uh, positive feeling you and feel from it the false positive the quote from train spotting is i'm paraphrasing but it's people don't do heroin because it feels bad because it's the greatest fucking feeling right. in the world to them but the moral of these stories is that at the end of the day it's not worth it and that's what you hear recovering addicts say that it's more it's, it's worth it to find joy in real life than it, than it is to, to to deal with these temporary cre- highs temporary highs exactly these created obviously chemical highs right so this sequence shows that and it shows how it can go off the rails but then they have this crazy too cool to be true story at the end of it that they come away with so they don't walk away having been scared straight, or do they? Like, I want to see that, right? You know, they don't walk away having hit rock bottom, or did they? We don't get that either. No, but maybe the implication, you know, Vincent was scared for his life on a stranger's floor, having to drill a needle into a, a confidant's heart who he barely knows. Yeah. Maybe that's supposed to be the deterrent from it all. And Mia obviously has a deterrent. I don't know. I'm just playing devil's advocate for the issue. Does this film have to be a deterrent for drug use? Is that the film's job? You do show in the script that bad things happen as a result of this drug use. So, I mean, it it kind of you can easily play devil's advocacy, but I just don't think Tarantino's argument is as strong there. Maybe it's a question of degree. You want to see more. You want to be shown more than what he ended up putting in the final cut. I think that's a fair criticism. I also, and I don't want to belabor the point, and I don't mean to go back to it, but my God, Quentin, you have a scene where you have Marcellus using that word, and Bruce Willis doesn't have to repeat it, and it has just as much effectiveness, and you show that scene at the very beginning. Are you my whatever? 
And yeah. Bruce Butch's response is, I guess I am. Like, that's that's you great. Talk your do way that. Around it. Yeah. Easily. You just showed you could do that in this movie. And then you go back to like one of the next scenes you have somebody repeating it. So there's there's ways around all these shortcomings. I wonder in ninety four, is it you know, Reservoir Dogs was such a critical success. Do I really have no one to answer to but myself? Yeah. Is it the TriStar Miramax struggle? I fought and clawed my way to have final say, so this is going to be my movie and I'm going to have what I want in it. There's a lot of things and a lot, of, a lot of ego factors that come into play that maybe we'll never get to the bottom of or know why he decided to go these ways with the word, with the glorification of drug use like it is. Who knows? I don't have an answer for it. I just wonder if students 50 years from now are going to look back at all the, the Harvey Weinstein connection. They're going to look back yeah. at... Quentin Tarantino using these words and just say, no, we don't rewatch these movies and we don't celebrate these movies as much because of this. Well, that's where it's shit going. In the middle right? of the movie. I, I mean, in 94, this was, this was not as big a deal, certainly as it hits you in 2019. This wasn't as big a deal in 2010 rewatching this as it hits you in 2019, but because of the movements that we've all, and the education, hopefully that we've all yeah. kind of grown under together. Like I said, for me, I'm, I can't speak about 50 years from now, but for me right now, I, I, t- I took two points off. It's, it's final score just in my little ledger of movies. I've yeah. watched. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, the, the rewatching of these movies, as much as we love some of the stuff that go, uh, that we enjoy, they, they they do shock you. They yeah. do really do shock you. It hits you your wrong. It hits you more wrong now than it did probably at any time prior. Whether that's right or wrong, whether it's okay that it took this long for that to happen, is a different argument and a different conversation. Now, this movie, I would say, doesn't get to the level of Reservoir Dogs for me and being a, one of those movies that I don't want to rewatch as much because of that stuff. Because this, at least, you have redemption stories throughout. And it's that's what the right. whole movie's about. And you can kind of... I hate to say it, rationalize. Yeah, my, the, I get what you're saying. I don't like the, the gratuity is unforgettable. Yeah, my, I just, that's what I was going to say. But I cannot get past Jimmy, the Jimmy character. The Jimmy use of character. It. it really, it, it, it's just awful. But it's so strange because Tarantino's character in Django Unchained substitutes another word for that word right. multiple times. Now, I don't remember, we're, we kind of paused this and wondered if he actually uses the uh, the word and we don't remember. We'll have to review it when yeah, we get there. Right. But I, it's almost like he's always a reactionary to this criticism. Now, does that represent how he's learning from it? Right. I don't know. I right. don't know. We're going to have to get there. Right. It's that's it's kind of remains to be seen as to if he's actually, if these Those are mean admission. anything yeah. to him. If, if that's an admission of guilt in a way. Or if it's just falling on deaf ears. Yeah. Right. We'll move on. Next section, we do have a lot of glowing things to say about this script and the screenwriting process that Tarantino put together, so there's no better place to turn uh, than having him comment on his own process here. So what do we have, Mike, for some screenwriting advice? So this is from James Pasco at Film Slate Magazine. He wrote an article about five screenwriting lessons from Quentin Tarantino. Next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about method writing for Jackie Brown. It was another article that I stumbled over. So we're going to talk about a lot of cool things the rest of this rewatch here but five definitive things that absolutely connect to Pulp Fiction. Number one, Quentin said, I steal from everyone and of course we paid homage to all his homages. We covered this earlier. Roger Uh, Avery would agree. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Tarantino says now this is something that connects to what we just talked about 10 minutes ago. Tarantino says, write the way people talk and the way people talk And how, in the manner of, yes, that's true. Getting the essence of it and turning it into almost song. The function of it, 
the the type of dialogue that you get in real life is what you want in movies. But elevated dialogue is something that Sorkin always preaches throughout his masterclass, throughout all of his advice on screenwriting. And I think Tarantino shows just what Sorkin says, or what Sorkin tells, if I can finish an analogy from screenwriting (laughs) handbooks ever correctly. But Mike, these friends have all these arguments just like we do. We have arguments about sports that connect with movie characters that basically we make homages to what we've done in the past and what we want to do in the future. Wouldn't we totally say, I want to be like, this guy from Kung Fu from this TV series. Won't we? I want. I would just want to be like Jon Snow. I mean, that's something I've been saving to tell you going forward. <laughs> I don't want to do seven podcasts a week. I want to walk into way into the woods like Jon Snow at the end of some point. Minor spoiler there, but I mean, writing the way people talk is it fits but at the same time none of us i would never speak to you like uh jules speaks to yeah it's like the best versions of how you can say something both sorkin and tarantino and it's what we highlighted before where sorkin has like maybe the most eloquent or the most articulate version of it tarantino has the most sing-songy and the most flowy version of it if we're doing bits to one another which we like to do right maybe we'll get some of that panache right and some of those players in but we do like like i said that was sneaky Tarantino, that's you're not going to get that in real life. No, probably not. But that's why real life sucks, and that's why we go to the movies. You're going to get the, that. <laughs> the, the, that, the, that. All right. So uh, number three is take a popular genre and flip it onto its head. This this is Tarantino. This, this is how he made his career, right? It's absolutely what Reservoir Dogs did. But in this one, it's fun because crime genre does not live in pulp fiction necessarily, right? It does not live in the 1920s and 30s. He goes old school and brings it into the new school, which I thought was fascinating. And I think if you analyze this script for all its homages, for all its mentions of history, it's really Tarantino talking about movies in general, but of course the history of the crime genre in general. I would also like to do, it might be worth doing some research into at some point, how many non-linear crime movies made it to screen prior mm-hmm. to Pulp Fiction versus post-Pulp Fiction? Because this is what we you most think of when you're thinking of start at one, go to eight, come back to six, go to four, come back to two. The end point of the chronology in this movie is in the end of Act Two, the middle of Act Two yeah. in this film, when, when Bruce Willis is riding off on the motorcycle. That's supposed to be the actual last scene. That's taking, the I would think, the entire genre and subversing it and doing something different with it. Now, in the last screenwriting advice from Tarantino, we talked about how crime novels do this, and, of course, he was on an Elmore Leonard kick. I've never read an Elmore Leonard novel. I wonder if those novels do exactly that. Number four, Tarantino says, make it personal. I mean, can you make it more personal than having the song that your mother said she danced to while she was <laughs> pregnant with you playing in the centerpiece of the fun and game section of early act two, act one of this story? Really, early act two. The fun and game section is the happiest section of your movie. You have the dance-off. You have Travolta, who hasn't danced in a movie since he got fat, dancing in this movie and doing all of I like that 94 Pulp Fiction Travolta is fat Travolta versus fat Mike Mike and Oscar. I love how Travolta said, like, all right, the twist is one dance, because Tarantino's like, it's a twist song, and do all your dancing. Mm -hmm. And then Travolta's like, actually, I can use these 10 dance moves 
And how would you like it if I integrated all of the other dance moves into my twist? Not just the one, but all these, I forget all the names of it, but he had all these funny names, like the, the salt shaker or whatever. Yeah. The dice, like me and Mike do on the, the dance the floor. The Batman, I think is what he called, the uh, the two, the peace sign going the across Batman. the eyes. <laughs> yeah, which is probably from Adam West's right. Batman, right? So, and then of course, you know, you have Mia Wallace, you have Uma Thurman using a bunch of dance moves that apparently Travolta coached her on. So they, they had this whole rehearsal. They did like this what is it the genesis of dance from that yeah the history of dance movie yeah right there Uh, that one of course they win the trophy but (laughs) mike they tarantino makes this movie personal by going off to amsterdam and having all these references from the vincent character to amsterdam if this is going to be celebrated as such a hallmark role for tarantino the idea that we're going to still write about women and write female characters without having a woman in the writer's room, obviously not speaking just about Tarantino's movies, but just talking about the movie industry in general, make it personal, speak your truth, write your truth, that's how you're going to get the best version of the script out, but yet you're going to have a female character without referencing any woman in the writer's room, that's absurd, that's hypocritical, which is what the movie industry is at times, but I just yeah. thought that's a good point to, to bring up here, that if you're going to write the truth, make sure you have enough truths in the room that you can rely on, maybe? It's unfortunate how he kind of like celebrates himself more than anybody else, unfortunately. We've said he's got the ego that kind of... And Linda Chen, who was Robert Towns' typist, who typed the script for him. Yeah. uh, She had a major role in this. Sally Menke had a a major role in this. Uma Thurman has had a major role. Did you happen to read how Tarantino refers to Linda Chen, though? Well, that's how Robert... He was quoting Robert Town referring to Linda Chen, and that was terrible. Yeah. And why even bring that up? It's terrible. So, yeah. but here's the thing. Anyway, <laughs> what is this movie really doing? It's a redemption story, and he decides to make a redemption story after his first movie gets made, and he goes off with finally some money in his pocket to make his second film and tell his second story. That's when he decides to do a redemption story because, of course, his 10 years of wandering in the wilderness led up to this, so he feels redeemed at this point. Yeah. And it foreshadows how, what a star he's really going to become. I'm blown away by the fact that, and this is going to sound obvious, but the fact that this is his second movie, in as much as, how much of himself he's able to inject into it. Yeah. I also wonder if, speaking your truth, writing your truth, injecting yourself, making it personal, I wonder if that was a hallmark for him in fighting for final cut and final say on the script in this. If he believed that as a tentpole of writing prior to getting this in the hands of Miramax and agreeing to send this to Miramax. Just something I would have, uh, I would love to know more about because this seems like a very personal movie and you're right. It does seem to go with the narrative of Tarantino's career arc. Yeah. So I wonder how much of that is him at the outset and him believing in himself and believing in the principle and you running off the fumes of the success, the critical success and the film festival success that Reservoir Dogs was to get to where we are with Pulp Fiction now. This is the time to ask it because Reservoir Dogs, he was basically scared that he was going to get fired. Right. And this one, he was very receptive to changes throughout pre-production because he didn't really know if he was going to be able to negotiate what he was able to negotiate at the end of the day. And once he got the power to negotiate those things, he totally wielded that power. I want Travolta. I want Final Cut. Either do it with me or don't. And once he had that opportunity, he took, took full advantage. Finally, number five is inject humor into your script. Obviously, there's a lot written in here. And then, you know, he takes smart suggestions when, Mike, it's funnier to do so. So when Phil Lamar gives him that... yeah. 
to, all right, we got to make this funnier. Uh, he never expected the Vincent plotline to be funny, and yet it is really, really funny. There's a shot at Jimmy's house where he opens the trunk, and you can see Phil Lamar. I think it's a mannequin of him there yeah. in the trunk with well, his face still intact. It's just a mannequin. I wonder if that's done purposely. I wonder if that's an homage to Lamar and this input. In the, I don't know. I wonder if that was done for humor's sake. I don't know. But there's plenty of humor to go around in this script, certainly. Like there was in Reservoir Dogs and like there is in every Tarantino script. So that's an easy rule to, to see that he actually holds true to and implicates. It's sick. Implements. It's sick, funny at times. I wonder if some of the other stuff is meant to be funny that doesn't really hit because it's too sick and too gross. <laughs> Maybe he laughed at it. But then actually these genuinely funny people you know take take charge of it and they really help and to Travolta just him looking around for the intercom has become a meme <laughs> yes in the red room yes. on Twitter it's become a meme everywhere and it's one of my favorite memes so you know you got all that going on and it's weird and ironic that the actual jokes telling of the movie is not a funny joke catch up it's not funny <laughs> There's, there's the, that, that payoff isn't funny, but the payoff that they have to go through what they go through to just to get the joke out there, that's the irony, yeah. Yeah, it's funny at the end of the day. All right, so that's the screenwriting advice section. Yeah, so we'll end up here. We'll try to tie the Tarantino verse together and have some Easter eggs that we can highlight here. The first one isn't really a big Easter egg, and it's probably the most well-known thing that I have, but the big Kahuna burger is mentioned throughout the Tarantino verse, but it clearly has its biggest stage to shine here as, yeah. as Jules eats a big Kahuna burger while in, burger. Front, yeah, while in front of him, but that's... <laughs> Obviously, uh, I just wanted to get that out of the way first because it's the most obvious one. In the one I want to eat one right now. <laughs> this instant. Uh, Mike, what do you have on Fox Force 5? It's essentially the assassin organization from Kill Bill. Yeah. And it's almost, it connects to those characters One for too. one, yeah. The kung fu, the knife expert. Oh, my God. I, I love how that was laying the groundwork and just shows how either forward-thinking or self-referential Quentin Tarantino is, depending on how he went about the Kill Bill script, whether that was in his head already to make as a movie or if he was looking for something to do. But, yeah, I, very clever there, and that's obviously something that's well-known. High snobriety, snobriety, cites a Rolling Stone interview in which Tarantino admits that he originally wanted the Knacks my Sharona yeah. to play during the gimp scene with Marcellus in the back room but he lost out to the movie Reality Bites when they too wanted the rights for the song to use in a pivotal dance scene in their movie and Reality Bites as the story goes thought it was better for their song to be licensed out to a coming of age drama than it was the gimp rape scene. Can you imagine <laughs> the difference? I mean because way, the way we think about you know the, uh, the Silence of the Lambs song Wild Horses or whatever that mm-hmm. song's called we would think, like, My Sharona's a banger. It's a great song. Like, we could still, like, everybody goes through a My Sharona phase where they'll play it ten times yeah. in a day at some point in their life because it's a, it's one of the biggest hit songs ever. It's now you'd have to play one. it ten times in a day while wearing a leather zip mask. We would never think of that song the same way. They were, ge- of course you sell the Reality Bites. Because the, the, the hot take here is you sell the Reality Bites, not Pulp Fiction, the $200 million you know, money earner. Right. Because that would have ruined your song yes. for, for iTunes forever. Yes. I don't care how I many co-signed. tens of thousands do- of dollars they would have paid for you there, it wouldn't be worth forever being known as that scene song. <laughs> One more little nugget, just uh, something you mentioned throughout both Tarantino Pulp Fiction episodes here, but everyone probably knows about the studio's trepidation with Tarantino hiring Travolta, as they feared Johnny T would be viewed as a has-been, but maybe people aren't aware, as the Daily Beast reports, that Vincent Vega's role was supposed to at one point have gone to Daniel Day-Lewis. 
That's uh, wild, too, because, yeah, that's who Weinstein wanted. Right. Uh, originally intended for a Quentin Tarantino standby, Michael Madsen. Mike already told you about this. Madsen passed on the role in order to do Wyatt Earp. It was the head honchos at Miramax, the Weinsteins, who wanted to give the role then to Daniel Day-Lewis, who it seems actively went after the role himself in what is said to be the only role in which the actor actively pursued in his career. However, if you go by what was discussed in the bonus discs on the Tarantino XX Blu-ray box set, it was actually Tarantino who put the kibosh on any actor calling to play the role of Vega, Daniel Day-Lewis included, because of the insistence by Tarantino that the role belonged to Travolta and any discussion regarding a recasting would be a non-starter. Once Tarantino gets fixated on having no, somebody he doesn't in his movie see the type he gets pretty <laughs> obsessed but it's interesting because daniel day lewis is kind of that way too i read something that they were talking about other directors who have wooed you know daniel day lewis mm-hmm. in the past and tarantino was never going to be that kind of guy who goes overseas to the right. shoop cobbling shop <laughs> where Daniel Day Lewis was just being right. that month of his life. And Tarantino was not going to go there and try and get him out of that cobbling shop to do his gangster movie. That could have been an interesting clash of personalities on set there between I finally have total control over everything about this movie, Tarantino, and Oscar winner method actor Daniel Day Lewis. That would have been interesting. I don't know if that would have worked. Maybe it would have. Maybe it, maybe we missed out unfortunately we'll never know all right let's talk about this briefcase here mike that's the big fifth thing we wonder if we should break it down later if we should just tease that what if video right now but we do kind of have i at least i have a theory that that basically just poops on the other theory but that it's marcellus wallace's soul yeah the big theory out there is that it's marcellus wallace's soul that's in the briefcase because he made a deal with the devil for reasons all right now what i like about this theory the one thing i'll give to it is that i think jules wants to get this briefcase back to marcellus right so it's specific to marcellus Mm -hmm. that makes some sense obviously when souls are taken out of the body i think they're taken out through the back of the head people were saying that like that's a thing by the devil sure but if you buy into that, there's the Band-Aid at the back of Marcellus's... 666 right. is the combination, combination on the briefcase. briefcase. None of that sells me on it. I, I agree. That. But here's the whole thing. Like, why would his soul be able to be gotten back from the devil? Like, who's robbing it from the devil? Why do the white guys... Why does Brett... That's the biggest me? thing to me. Why, if it's Marcellus Wallace's soul, how does a guy like Brett get his hands on it? Is Brett supposed to be the devil? No. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> devil's killed pretty easily if that's the case. If that's the case. So it doesn't make any sense whatsoever if that's the soul, why the white guys get it. Now, I, I don't bias the soul. How the group of yuppie white guys could get it from Marcellus if it's the rewards that the devil gave. So if it's what Marcellus bargained for, you Because usually, when you make a deal with the devil... You know, your reward eludes you in every story ever told, biblical or not. Mm. If you make that deal with the devil from Aladdin to or whatever that deal of power, you usually get bamboozled at the end of it. Right. So if this was the end of Marcellus getting bamboozled out of his rewards, his golden rewards, whatever that is, then it makes some sense to me. But it's not his soul, though. 
It's not his soul that he can get yeah, back. No, he I wants the imagine. rewards. He's trading. Yeah. He's trading the afterlife for this life. Now, it's probably important to say neither one of us buy that either. We don't think it's that, do we? I don't think it's that. But I basically, just fundamentally, I disagree with right. the fact that it's a soul. I, think, I just happen to think it's a MacGuffin. I think Tarantino loves MacGuffins. I agree. He loves the usage of them, and he makes them one of the most juicy ones ever. And I also like the fact that you say that when you make a deal with the devil, things just go terribly wrong. Because I asked you, if Marcellus made a deal with the devil, then you get usually that means you're getting some sort of power. Why does he end up getting raped in the back room by two redneck guys? Again, deals with the devil tend to go awry. Usually go wrong. In yeah. terms of storytelling. And so in that would make sense. Tropes, so I guess it makes sense. You know, kind of like the whole Job thing goes awry with the deal with God in the in the Bible. But when you make deals with powerful beings, it doesn't go as planned when you're a human. I guess I don't know. So we we gotta come. We gotta figure this one out, Mike. And I don't think we're gonna do it now here and now. But we're gonna have to figure this one out at yeah. some point. I just think it's a MacGuffin right now. Maybe we'll do a what if really break this down because there's a lot of great angles to it. Agree. So we're going to leave it as a teaser, a spoiler teaser, as <laughs> I tried the coin on Junk About Movies. <laughs> yes, a spoiler <laughs> teaser. Uh, last thing, just as a means of setting up and giving you a preview into our next episode where we're going next with the Tarantino rewatch, The Daily Beast also shed light on the next Tarantino-verse film when discussing a rumor started by Courtney Love that Quentin had offered the role of drug dealer Lance to former Love, Bo, and Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain prior to Cobain's suicide in 1994. However, Cobain, rumored to have turned down the role, yeah. Tarantino has come out and said that this there's no truth to this, it's a false allegation, and gone on record saying that the part of Lance's girlfriend, Jody was, however, auditioned to be played by Pam Greer, but Tarantino couldn't see Greer being bossed around by a character like Lance in the way the script calls for, so he totally. instead would use Greer's take-no-shit personality and form his entire next production around it in Jackie Brown, with Greer playing the title role, and that's where this series is headed next. We will be covering Jackie Brown as the next part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. That's on the horizon for us. Uh, Mike, I'll let you tell the people what's next in Mike, Mike, and Oscar universe otherwise. So we're going to get back to Pixar. We got Cars 1, 2, and 3, that episode coming out eventually. We're planning it for the middle of next week. Of course, we got our MMOW, our variety show, where we keep you up to date on the news of the movie world, on all the new trailers. We got some more dropped this past week Mm -hmm. that we're going to dive into. We got all this awesome audience interaction, Six Degrees of MMO. I probably put that out yesterday, that little booster. So... This will come out, I don't know when, but the day before, <laughs> hopefully, I get that booster out and uh, enjoy that and give, send us your responses to that. And all our Twitter questions, we were light on the Twitter questions this week because we did essentially six episodes worth of content. We were on Junk About Movies. That was John Mark Junkin's uh, podcast out there in Oklahoma. We talked about... I thought it was Jim. Godzilla, the King of the Monsters tournament, which is a really flowed well. It was a lot of fun. We, yes, we it was. Giggles it was like we basically had the giggles that whole episode, <laughs> just laughing. And uh, we're going to continue to do guest spots on other shows that have already offered us. So we really appreciate that. So words of wisdom, Mike. I think like Tarantino, when we have future plans, they come from current plans, which yeah. is cool. Which is cool. Yeah. Like, out of this episode, whether we'll stick to him or not, we threw out the Fox Force 5 and Tarantino and then became Kill Bill later on. <laughs> we threw out the fact that we're, we're going to do what-if episodes essentially came out of this whole Tarantino rewatch idea. I would also say avoid pawn shops with gimps. That's, that's really wise. 
that's really wise. It's amazing. Here's some wisdom, though. It's amazing how many coincidences we forgive in Pulp Fiction. I meant to talk about this earlier. We forgive coincidences in Pulp Fiction, even though they're not really coincidences, because you have Marcellus, who's staking out Having with Vincent. crossing the street at that time. Yeah, yeah. He's, we know he's staking the place out with Vincent. Yeah. And that's his gun. Yeah. That's there, uh, known to be his gun. Aren't we more forgiving of coincidences when we can at least grasp onto something that's been presented to us to he, justify? He's a big guy. Right. They're going to get donuts. Right. Vincent's a big guy. Vincent loves his breakfasts. <laughs> Will you have breakfast with me, Jules? Yeah. That's what I want to say to you. Will you have breakfast with me, Mike? Because I want some. I'm hungry right now. <laughs> I am starving. We've done a lot of recording right now. Uh, guys, we'd love to hear from you. Talk about these or any other episodes in the MMO universe. You can reach out to us. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram. MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com. And on Reddit, we're available everywhere you hear podcasts. Tune in Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc. If you can give us a five star review on iTunes, those truly go a long way. We love talking with all of you we love uh interacting with you on all the social media platforms so keep the comments and quotes and all the other ideas coming otherwise when reality sucks you can come watch movies with us we're trying to take the stuffiness out of awards season making a year-round endeavor for you to enjoy we are mike mike and oscar and we will see you very soon